Daniel Glass needs no introduction, so I will give him no introduction. So you were a DJ at Regine's. How did that come together? How did I get the job at Regine's? I Let's was... start from the beginning, because some people may not even know what Regine's was. Explain Regine's. So Regine is a Holocaust survivor who creates the most important discotheque in the world in Paris. And from this incredibly hard upbringing, she creates an atmosphere where the, where the world comes together of royalty, wealth, jet set, truly jet set, and figured everything out of what people, how they want to be uh, uh, wined and dined. And the more money she charged, the better they did at this discotheque in, in, uh, in Paris. That same set moved to Gestad. They would move to, today, today you call them Aspen and Hamptons, but it was a different jet set in those days. So I'm in college, at Brooklyn College, and uh, working a few jobs in a luncheonette as a uh, short order cook, soda jerk for my uncle. But I was DJing, and I was working as a publisher also. And the woman who I worked for was a very wealthy woman. She owned uh, Palisades Amusement Park. Wow. And she, her husband passed away. She also wrote the theme song, Palisades Has she the Right. She wrote that? Com she was a songwriter. Because that's what I think of. She wrote that song. Freddie Cannon. Yeah, and she, no, no, that was two. There's two Palisades, the commercial she wrote. Okay. Pal that's this two. She also wrote, You Can Trust Your Car with the Man Who Wears the Star. The Texaco. great big Texaco star. She also wrote a standard torch song called How Did He Look, which was recorded when I was there 130 times by the greatest singers of all time. So she records this disco record of a song that we had in our catalog. And she says, you have to bring it to Regine's. It's opening up. And I had read about it, and the Liz Smith wrote about it, and a few other people. So in between college and different things, I go to the club, and nobody is speaking English. The manager was Italian, Peppo Vanini, and her sister, uh, Evelyn, was there and said, sit down, sit down. I thought I'm just there to meet the DJ. For some reason, they're confused. They think I'm there to audition for the DJ. So I stayed. I have the 12 inches with me, ready, and they bring me downstairs, and the club is unbelievable. It's opening in two days, the club. And they give me meal voucher tickets for Shrafts because I'm not going to be able to eat with the rest of the help. I'm not eligible yet. I'm not, I haven't earned it yet to sit at the table. I have no idea what's going on, and I, just, I keep going with it. Long story short, I become the opening night DJ with Jonathan. You were the opening night DJ? Opening night DJ with Jonathan Garavaglia because he has spoke no English, and I did the... American music, he did the rest of the world music, which really opened up my ears and eyes to international music, which is why I think Last Note is such an international label, because of really what happened at Regine's. It was at 59th and Park. Um, I never strayed from there, by the way. My entire career has been in three blocks of, of that time, whether it was Chrysalis, SBK, Glass Note. I think my entire career has been between 61st and 59th Street Park in Madison and Lexington. Um, A&M was there. But going back to Regine's, 
It was a magical time. Each night, Grace Kelly would come. Next night, Elizabeth Taylor would come. And, and uh, I became a source of information for the, for the, the what in those days, you know, the, the page six of today. I legitimately became the source of who was there. And I learned so much about music. And then Did the, you get paid for being a source? I got paid a lot of money to be a DJ, and I'm still in college. I got paid money. One of the great scenes at Regine's was she saw somebody giving me a tip. They gave me $10 to play a song. And I said, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. She took the money, she threw it. You never, ever play anything for less than $100. This is, this is the late 70s. Right. Then I made a cassette for $50 for somebody. She took the cassette and she threw the cassette. She said $150 for a cassette. I was playing the music anyway. All it was taping is what I was playing. So I learned a lot about what, how people wanted to be treated. And then how they want bottle service started there. The whole concept of bottle service, owning a bottle. And the, some of the bottles were watered down. But that's, a, that's another good story. But that's um, so, many, so many lessons in that getting that job. And she was thrilled, my boss. And it, it said something about showing up. So I stayed there for about a year, year and a half, maybe more. And that led to another DJ job. So, but Regine's was the place. Um, it was the suit and tie place, answer to Studio 54. And uh, very hard to get in, very, very expensive. So we went to a restaurant last fall, one of the exclusive lunch places, and we got the best table in the joint because you said the maitre d' you knew, or the owner you knew from machines. Mm -hmm. So the owner was a busboy. Really? Yeah. And now he owns the coolest bistro in New York. So we go back to those days. Yeah. And the bistro's name for the audience. Le Bilboquet. Right. Where I'm, I'm there three, four days a week. And uh, Philippe created You probably read about it because Michael Cohen is there three days a week. And if he's not there, the other lawyer, Stormy Daniels, Michael, whatever's with A.V. Avenatti, he's there. So this is what's going on around our block every single day. The two, Avenatti and Cohen, they go to three restaurants. They go to Fred's, they go to Bill Bouquet, and they go to Lagolu, and they have coffee at San Ambrose, torturing each other every day. <laughs> okay, so you grew up in Brooklyn. Is there music in the house in Brooklyn? There's a lot of theater, there's a lot of film, there's a lot of soundtracks. There's Soundtracks, w you mean like the original Broadway gas yeah, albums? Yeah, well, my parents took us to Broadway. We went to the city um, many times a year to see, you know, West Side Story or uh, King and I, My Fair Lady. But West Side Story was the first musical I ever saw and changed my life. Um, the violence, the, the, the up, you know, the Hell's Kitchen, uh, the, the soundtrack. I, I'd never heard a song as, as beautiful as Somewhere. And I was a young boy. And then we saw the other ones and they really were great. And we went to the House of Chan afterwards for Chinese food on Sunday. Um, but it was extraordinary to go to the city. And that, that was going to the city. The only time we went to the city was for theater. Um, how about when you were a teenager? Would you go into the city, as we used to say in the 60s, to hack around? I only, I, I was 16. I, I, I got into college very early. I skipped a couple of times. And I got into college uh, rather early. So at 16, I think I'm already a freshman or sophomore. And my friend told me about a club 
on the what what they call Lower East Side now. We I don't not sure what area we call it in those days. It was on First Avenue and Second Street, and it was called Club Eighty Two. And he went and he said, "You have to." And, and, and he said, "You have to see this. You have to hear it. You have to see the whole thing." I said, "What happened? What happened?" He says, "I can't explain it." So I went. This was a transvestite club. And you walk down the stairs, and you see posters of David Bowie, the Stones, uh, David Johansson, all in drag. And you get t- greeted by, I didn't know it was a woman. I thought it was, I thought it was a man. And uh, they greet you. And you had to wear, they wanted the men to wear tight pants and high heels. And um, it wasn't a gay club. It was a club just to have a great time. And it was the first time I saw a guy playing two turntables. And, and all I did was, I, I just stayed with him. Though. I just stayed watching him. His name was Tony Mansfield. And he would come back from Paris and from London. We got friendly, bringing these seven-inch records and playing them. And he had a headphone on one ear. And he was doing this back and forth. And it, it made me crazy about music and about being and watching the dance floor. In those days, people didn't care if you sat down, you got up. And, uh, but that was the first time I went to the city without my parents. And my best friend took me to these clubs. And then these clubs gave birth to other clubs. It was uh, Le Jardin and, uh, and many, many clubs you know, we went to uh, to hear music. And it was great. And it's the first time I ever saw producers coming to clubs. I used to go to the DJ booth. So I became known in a few of these clubs just as a kid just like to hear music. And I used to say to this guy, Bobby, at Infinity or Le Jardin, I said, who's that? Who's that? This guy produced this record. It was like Sandy Linzer, you know, people like that, or uh, those Bob Gordio kind of guys would come in to the gay clubs and play the music. And uh, then I saw what I guess were major label people coming in. And then the greatest thrill was when this very, very overweight black guy came in, and it was Barry White. Really? And he wanted to hear the records. He wanted to test the records. Which Did is you why talk I st- to Barry White? No, I didn't talk to I, I, did, I didn't kind of know who he was. His voice was great. He was a big man. And it was the, um, it was the love's theme. It, 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 there, was no, there, was no, there was no vocal. The theme song from Love Unlimited, right? Yeah. And he had all these... And, and every time we, the DJ would play, so I got more. He had a whole stable. Because he had, I think, the Three Degrees might have been. or What was the name of the women that sang? Uh, I forget. Love Unlimited Orchestra. But he was... In, Love Unlimited. So he used to go there, and um, I always tell the artist that we sign a glass note to play the music for the audience first, which is counterintuitive to a lot of my competitors or my peers. You know, they want to keep the security. I said, play it. Include the audience. Test it. Play it early. Mumford & Sons is a great example of an artist that always plays the music early. And I remember they were playing with U2 last year, and they were playing music that I'm just hearing now being recorded. So my first trip to Minneapolis, I saw this five foot three guy go into the booth, and you know who that was, and he went in and tested his music. And I went to Atlanta, the same thing happened in Atlanta. In Miami Beach, producers would do that, the TK gang. LA, which was very late to disco and dance, and San Francisco, you'd see Sylvester, you'd see Patrick Cowley, you'd see uh, people in, in LA, the Casablanca Records crew would come in. Okay, so when do you decide you want to be in the music business? Hmm. That was controversial. So I'm in college, and I'm cruising towards becoming a pediatrician. 
that was the Jewish thing. You were a lawyer. Only a doctor. You already knew you were going to be a specialized, be a pediatrician. I wanted to be a pediatrician because I loved our pediatrician. He was very nice. And I wanted to be him. So the DJing thing got to me and, and working at the college radio station, similar to Rob. He did it earlier than he did it in high school. And I got hooked. The easiest conversation was with my parents, who were very supportive. They said, do whatever you want. Um, the only problem with my parents was, to, to this day, my mother still thinks I'm a DJ. Um, and she always say, are you going out tonight? Are you working tonight? She still asks me that, are you, are you working tonight? Uh, but that was the easy one. The hard one was going into the dean or student advisor, I forget what the name of the people at Brooklyn College were, to explain in my junior year that I want to change. And I finally found a woman who was very supportive, and she said, you've got to go into a, a theater class, and you've got to take some humanities, and you've got to study Marshall McLuhan. I said, who's that? She said, oh, he's, he's the guru. He's in charge. He's the, whole, he's the whole universe of media, communication, and messaging. So I switched. Um, I gave up stuff I loved. I loved the Bunsen burner. I loved the lab techniques. I loved the emergency room of the hospital. And I, you know, it was, for me, it was Einstein or Downstate Medical Center, where I was going to go. And, um, but it was easy um, once I got into that groove of, of doing it. Then I really, I went, to, I went to college. I checked in. I just went to class, but I was not there. I physically checked out, uh, or mentally checked out, I should say, in my second half of junior year. But I wanted to finish. I had to finish. That I owed my parents, and I wound up. Well, one of the things you said to me in 1990, which I repeat all the time, you had the first SBK Records convention in the desert, and you see three things you need to work at SBK Records. And I'm not going to say them in the order you said. You said you have to really want to work at SBK Records. You have to work retail because that's where the transaction actually happens, where people pay their money. And you say you have to graduate from college. And I cornered you later in the hotel, and I said, and college had been the first thing you mentioned. I say, you know, I went to college, okay, and I graduated, but, you know, this is business where people didn't go to college. And you say, I say, why do you have to go to college? You say, well, you don't learn anything in college, but it proves that you can f complete something. Yes. Yeah, it's, um, it really bothers me how many people do not finish a book a movie, a newspaper. Do not wait till the closing credits. We're in the music industry, and I'm always asking people. I called this guy from Downtown Music recently. His name is Justin Kalifowitz, to tell him how how great he did in a movie because I saw he he licensed all these songs. He was I think he was surprised that I stayed till the credits. Um, I think it's a really bad trait, an attribute of our business that people do not finish the job. It takes a long, long time to finish. And it's not easy, the end. The, you know, I've run many, many marathons, and that last mile, that last point two, they're the hardest, but they're the most euphoric. You've got to finish. Um, and it's, it's, it really says something to me when people, cause some people say to me, oh, I, I, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't, I skipped over that. I probably wouldn't hire them. I like people that finish. So you're in college, and you get the, the first music business jobs with the publishing organization? Yeah, this woman, Gladys Shelley and Harry Finfer. And in, how'd you in get the that city. gig? I played this song on my show called Wet Weekend, and I read about it in Record World magazine, 
And it said, if you need an extra copy, call this guy. And I called him. And my program director, who actually went on to fame in radio, said, you should never meet your, your listeners. It's a, it's, a, it's a mystique. I said, I'm in college. Come on. <laughs> so I decided to call this guy. And he said, love to meet you. So I went to the city. My father took me. And then he said, where should I pick you up? I just thought of the only place I ever heard of was the Empire State Building. I said, pick me up the Empire State Building. Pick me up in a limo. My father said goodbye. And I went, and my life changed that night. I went to uh, Fifth Avenue and 69th Street to a dinner at Gladys Shelley's apartment. And she offered me a job. I went in, and no one said hi to me. I just walked in, and I sat at the dinner table. And the butler had given me a, a spoon for salt and a spoon for pepper. I had never seen anything like that in my life from Bensonhurst. And I noticed there were four or five chihuahuas walking around and literally urinating everywhere on, on, on the curtains, on the carpet. I said, what am I? It's like a Fellini movie. And there's a guy sitting next to me, fascinating guy. And I said, what do you do? He says, I own Metro Media. I said, you own Channel 5? <laughs> yes, William Kluge. Right. He's, he's at the table. And he loved Gladys. That's the kind of table. So it was a, this salon that she had. And I started working that night for her, um, and I was the go-to publisher. And all I had to do was get artists to sing our songs. And um, that was my first job. Okay, and then you're working as a DJ. You say you leave regimes to go to another club. What was the motivation there? This guy, this six-foot-five, great-looking guy comes up to me and says, Dan, because I'm usually Danny, Never Daniel. Dan, I need to have lunch with you. Come to my office. Gives me his card. And it said Revlon. His name is Frank Shields. He's Brooke Shields' father. So I go see Frank the next day. And this is like Super Wasp. I, again, never met a guy like him before. And he's the number two or three at Revlon. I met Charles Revson, who's the number one there. And he says, listen, Dan, um, I'm on the board of a club called Doubles. We'd like to double your salary. Whatever you want, we want the mystique and we want the regime's vibe in the Sherry Netherland Hotel. I had to go one block, by the way. It's 59th and 5th now, going out of my comfort zone. All right. Still there, by the way, st still there. And uh, it was a no-brainer. I'd just gotten married, and I said, this would be great. And I said, but I want to design the DJ booth. And he said, whatever you want. And I wanted uh, Thorne's turntables, which were my favorite, because that's what Larry Levan was using at the, at the garage, so I wanted the same as him, and David Mancusa was using those. Didn't turn out to be so... I needed to go to Techniques after that, but we were using Thorne's with rubber bands. Um, as opposed to the direct drive. Yeah, and what's, what's really ironic is the owner of the club's husband bought Gerard, Gerard turntable from England. That's like a weird thing. I wouldn't use those because they were terrible. Right. Um, so I worked at Doubles. And what did they say at Regines when you walked? Uh, well, I can't say this because it's not politically correct. Uh, um, um, what can I say politely? Uh, <laughs> no, because I love the people of this country. And I don't want to make a statement from, about people from because of a country. But they were... Their arrogance said goodbye, basically. If you know what I'm saying? Read between the lines? Okay. Um, Not really, but we'll roll. 
French people would, would not give you the benefit of the doubt. That's why we love them so much. And they said, au revoir. A bientôt. Okay. Tout à l'heure. Uh, and I left, and I went to doubles. And I was quickly rising up in the music industry, and I had a, you know, we had a baby now, we have Sean. So I need a substitute. I can't work six nights a week. So I find this guy named Ted Courier. Ted becomes my number two. Ted becomes a record producer. He produces Xavier's uh, Work That Sucker to Death. Ted becomes really big. I get Ted a job at Kiss to do the master, the master mixes. And I said, Ted, you're getting so busy. We can't handle this. I said, we can't run a business within a business. He says, yes, we can. I have a guy you need to meet. I said, who's that? He said, this guy's going to sub for me. I said, but you're already subbing for me. So this kid comes in. He's never spun records before. His name is Junior Vasquez. I said, what are you going to do? We're going to teach him. He learns how to do at doubles in a suit and tie club. He becomes, you know, the go-to guy, obviously. So now we have the master mixes for WBLS and KISS going on at doubles. All the tapes, all the Saturday and Friday night shows are coming out of doubles. No one knows this in the world. The owners don't know it. Junior rises up to this huge mixer. Madonna discovers him while he's working at doubles. And they do Vogue and all those records. So it was a great time for us. We had a ball. And I was down to like once every two weeks at this point. But I had the contract. And I'm subbing it out to these guys. And we wind up having like six of the greatest DJs of all time coming out of this little club doubles. You're listening to Daniel Glass on the Bob Left Sets podcast. This podcast is brought to you by TuneIn, which brings together all the live sports, music, news, and podcasts you love. Original, live, and on-demand audio all in one place. Go to TuneIn.com slash LeftSets to download and listen. Now, more of my conversation with Daniel Glass, recorded live in Santa Barbara at the Music Media Summit. Okay, but you marry your wife, and your wife's father is in the business. Yeah, I worked for Sam for about three or four years. We had a lot of success. Sam this was it simultaneous to DJing? Yes, a lot of jobs. Well, why don't you tell the audience who Sam was? So S- Sam Weiss was, a, was an R&B pioneer entrepreneur who owned the biggest one-stop in the world, Win Records and Video. First guy to ever, Danny Bush worked there. Um, so One Stop was a place where retail stores would come to get all the labels, all the brands. And this was in the food business, the clothing business. It was a, a warehouse where you could either buy by phone, and you could do it, you know, or telex before faxing, or visit there. And you'd go into a little booth, listen to the new selections, and then you'd buy it. But every single label, so the major labels, independent, but all the records would break out of here. And the radio stations would be calling What's happening? This was the pulse of the street at a one-stop. Everything happened at a one-stop. And uh, in fact, some of the records would come in and so quickly unpack, they wouldn't even get unpacked, they'd go right back out to the stores. And you could sell, out of a one-stop, twenty-five to 50,000 copies of a record. But you saw it all. Our little record company was based there. And uh, we, had, we had a lot of big dance and R&B hits, and we were very tied into radio. And I worked for my father-in-law. Before I went to Chrysalis, I worked there for about uh, three, four years. So how did you get the job at Chrysalis? 
Well, we did a very good job. Um, Columbia, uh, Columbia Records hired us secretly to work their records. Bill Graham was a f- was was. Uh, everybody know who, who who Bill Graham is? The famous promoter and venue on Fillmore East, Fillmore West. So Bill Graham had a band called Santana. And Santana had a song called One Chain Don't Make No Prison. And it was a dance record. And all these dance records were coming out. Rod Stewart had one. Everyone was coming with a, di- a disco or a dance record. But he didn't trust Columbia Records. So they subcontracted this to us to run it up the charts and get him on. People just wanted us to get records on one radio station. It was WBLS, which really ran America at the time, a DJ named Frankie Crocker, who was, you know, he was the Howard Stern of music, the biggest DJ in the world. Legendarily, he took money, though. Well, my father-in-law went to the, it's, it's in the public, my, my youngest son is studying, uh, has a class, he's, he's in college now, and there's actually the trials of Alan Freed are in there. My father-in-law testified in those trials about what happened, what didn't happen. Um, Al Sharpton was the guy, by the way, supposedly the bag man for James Brown and for all that transactional money. I didn't know that. Yes, yes, yes. If you look at Al, Al Sharpton, I can't talk about Frankie Crocker's past of what he did or didn't do because I never saw it. Um, so I, that's all alleged or hearsay, but Frankie was great to us. Um, but the point was we were so tied in to WBLS and subsequently WKTU and subsequently what WXLO had become that the major labels came to us for help. So we were doing that on the side. And then Barbara Streisand had this song called The Main Event and she had No More Tears, Enough is Enough. We did that. So the president of Columbia, a guy named Jack Crago, left to become the head of Chrysalis. And I was his first phone call. What was strained was he was my father-in-law's best friend. So I told my father-in-law I'm leaving. It didn't go very well, but I also thought it would be great for the marriage because we would just talk music and business 24 hours, you know, seven days a week. So it was actually great for the family. It was great for the marriage. And then I started at Chrysalis. And uh, all he wanted me to do was mix and edit records. That was my job. Go into the studio, mix, edit. And in those days, it was called New Music Marketing, NU. I was the head of New Music Production and Marketing. And that was my job at Chrysalis. All I had to do is take the cool records from overseas, mix them, edit them, and give them to the staff. But ultimately, you became head of promotion. How did that happen? All by mistake. Um, I brought the record we had finished very passionately, Spandau Ballet, I brought it to all my black DJ friends. I brought Is it- Is that true? True. Yeah. I brought True to Frankie Crocker, who put it on and went number one. Then I went to Philadelphia to WDAS to see Butterball, and he put it on. And I think what got me as the guy, had a promotion was my brother-in-law was graduating from Stanford. I had never been to San Francisco, Palo Alto, we, and I did something crazy. We're driving, we land, and my father-in-law was a tough, tough guy. If you know anything about the Weiss brothers, High Weiss, Sam Weiss, and George Weiss, two of them were very tough, and their stories are in many books and, you know, tough guys from the Bronx. So I was a little afraid of my father-in-law. So as we get in the rental car, I said, would you mind if we made one stop and I have to, and he's already like really upset with me that I took this job. Can we stop at KFRC? And he said, who do you know there? I said, I don't know anybody. 
So we stop at this in the parking lot of KFRC, which is this big radio station, the biggest top 40 on the, would you say, John, the biggest on the West Coast? Yeah. So I stop there and I go out of the car and I've got once one, I guess it was a seven inch disc of, of True by Spandau Ballet. And I go to the receptionist and this guy greets me, such a nice guy. And he says, you know, you have no appointment. I said, no. I said, but I need to get this to Sandy Louie, who is a female. She's the music director. And he says, let me see what I can do. And he comes back, he says, she won't see you, but I'm going to give it to her. And he says, I know this group. And he says, call me next week. I go to the graduation, and this guy calls me, and he says, she really likes it, but she doesn't believe in chrysalis, which is interesting. So eventually she calls me, and she, and she says, we're going to play it, but can you, can you guys deliver this? So I tell my boss, I, I said, listen, she believes in the record, but not the company. We haven't delivered a hit and." Well, I just joined the company. The company was cold. So everybody starts playing this record. And this guy, by the way, is now the president of RCA. His name is Keith Naftali. This is the receptionist. He went on to KMEL. Wow. Yeah, that's a real story. So be nice to the people on the bottom and the people on the top. Good advice. Uh, Keith was great, and stayed. Fr- I stayed friendly with him, and we're still friends. So... True goes to number two on the pop charts, and there's a very, very bad situation with Huey Lewis in the news and Chrysalis. And it's, it's documented in Rolling Stone. The manager, who's a hothead, this guy, Bob Brown, basically oh, says... Oh, he's a hothead. We want, we want off the label. They're terrible. And they weren't that big. They were a bar band from Mill Valley at the time, and they, they'd done okay. Um, but they deliver this record called Sports. And Bob Brown really said, we would like him to be in charge. And I, and I said, I don't know anything about this stuff. I, 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 I've never been to any of these radio stations. I know nothing about it. So my boss says, you better learn. So my wife got flashcards, and she did the W's and the K's and would test me every night. And uh, I had to get the program director's name, the music director's name, the radio station location. I didn't know what a K was. I didn't know what a Q was. And um, I, had two, I had two bosses in promotion, but they really weren't my bosses. Um, and then I started to travel, and I went down to these places, and um, I learned about it. And uh, a guy named Fred DeCipio took me under his wing, who was documented in the book Hitman, and was very nice to me, and mentored me in the game of promotion. And I learned it quickly. I guess I did well on the flashcards. So. Okay, okay, but also that turned into a gigantic album. So when did you know, wow, am I, we have a juggernaut here? I was in Atlanta, and my boss, I had never been to Atlanta, I'd never been to the South, and my boss sent me down, it was a consultant named Don Kohlberg, and Jack Crago said, forget about the promotion, you go down there. You go down there, and you got to get this record re-added, the first single, I think it was called Heart and Soul. And they dropped it. I, I, I go to the radio station. And the guy says, you got to come out tonight. You come out tonight with us, we'll talk about it. But he said, we don't do that. We don't go back on records. And we went to Jim Davenport's house, the old bear, who's this independent promotion guy. And we're hanging around. And he's got a jukebox. And I said, put that record on the jukebox. And he says, he played it twice. And it sounded really good. And I said, but that's the one you dropped. So they tortured me for about three weeks. Then they re-add the record. And you needed the South. Atlanta was the key to the whole country. You get Atlanta, you get Augusta. You get 
Charlotte, you get Savannah, you get everywhere came in North, uh, you know, Tampa was really important in those days. And you got them, and they would spread to Texas. But you had to have the South. But John Young and Jeff McCartney were running the South. One was 94Q, one was Z93. We got Z93, and once he went back on the record, the record goes to number one. Every single went number one after that. And I thought that's the way it works. <laughs> so that's the, every record went number one. Now, you ultimately had a string of hits, and then Charles Koppelman calls and says, come with me to my new company. Well, Chrysalis sold, unfortunately. And the one company they said they would never sell to is EMI, that the owners had a divorce, and they sold to EMI. I, I, I'm unemployed for about six hours. Um, and the phone's ringing, and it was Stephen Swid, Charles Koppelman, and Martin Bandier. We'd like to meet you. And... Uh, they said, we're starting a company, EMI is funding us, and we don't really have anybody who knows anything about the record business. They were publishers, and they had just scored. So I took the job, because I said, this is the best blank canvas I've ever seen. That's why I took the job. I think it's that old thing that, to find out just how good you are, it was a completely blank canvas, well-funded. So I took that job, coming off this incredible, we just finished Sinead O'Connor, World Party, and the Water Boys. So, and we went into, you know, the, the problem with the music of SBK, though, the beginning music was very, very pop, very pop. And uh, that was one of the greatest three-year runs of all time. I don't think there would be an Interscope or a Giant or anything if we didn't have that run, because it proved that you could take it from scratch and build a huge company. Well, the first hit was Technotronic. First big hit was, was Pump Up the Jam. And then Vanilla Ice. No, no, no. Was it no, Walking Will, on Sunshine? No, Wilson Phillips was second. No, no. We had Katrina and the Waves. We didn't have the big hit, but we had Technotronic into Wilson Phillips. Technotronic was probably the first mass-licensed record. Um, and I became friendly with the guy that, that licensed it, a guy named Ron Perlman, who owned Revlon, by the way, um, afterwards. It's, it's a funny story. Uh, one of my rewards for doing so well at SBK was they wanted to get me some custom suits. And I went to this guy, Fioravanti, for a suit. He was there. And I told him what I did for a living. And he heard the song Move This. And he made it a Revlon commercial. So, but if you go to any sports, or the sports places started playing Pump Up the Jam uh, as one of the anthems of basketball and baseball, football. And then Wilson Phillips was the second one. Then Vanilla Ice was a monster hit. Uh, John Cicada, Blur, Jesus Jones. Then we did the Creation Records deal where we had adorable slow dive Oasis. All of this in three years. It was, it, I'm leaving out, we had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was multi-platinum. Uh, I'm leaving out like six more. This is all in three years. That was a hundred million dollar company in those days. A year. And... You also assemble a promotion team where those people go on to greater success. Yeah, I, I, I got the secret. The secret was the CBS College Department. It wasn't called Sony. And I would take the best reps every year. I used to say to those guys, why don't you take those people? I took them all. So that's where I found Hillary, who went up to run the WNBA. I found Greg Thompson. I found uh, Chris Waltman, who's now managing 21 Pilots and NF, came out of that school. Um, uh, countless people 
They were the greatest because they were trained really well. And I just would pluck them out and throw them into the field. I threw Monty Littman in, into Atlanta. I threw Rob Stone, who now owns Fader and Cornerstone. I threw him into San Francisco. Um, John Cohen, who legend, I threw him into Boston. Uh, so many of them. They, they, were, they were great. Um, and still friendly with all of them. They were just all terrific. Okay, so SPK has this amazing run. They sell the company to EMI. Twice in my life. Okay. And did you then, you then get elevated to a big position? The worst. That was the worst. Um, the golden handcuffs, if I wanted the big check, was to become president and CEO of Emerge, EMI Records Group North America. We know how great when you merge three cultures, three promotion staffs, three business affairs, three A&Rs. Um, it was a good run, but I, I didn't enjoy one day of it. It was not me. It's not who I am. And uh, I spent about two years or maybe a little less doing that. And it was tough. It was really tough. And uh, every superstar delivered a record, shall we say, less than robust. I had Billy Idol's cyber period. I had Roxette. I had Queensryche. I had Robert Palmer. I had Pat Benatar. Not one of them delivered the home run that we thought we could. Because on paper, it looked great. But I think it had to do with the culture. We managed to break a few on the side. We had Arrested Development. We had a few other pretty big hits. But it was very tough. And then the war happened between Blur, EMF, Jesus, Jesus Jones. And they weren't happy. They were under the same... Because they, they needed their own cultures to breathe. So then that ends... And suddenly, I can't remember. Did you go independent before you worked with Doug, or you went? No, 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 no. Doug, Doug went called. To work for Doug. We all, everybody, lost their job within a month. It was Mo Austin, Doug. I don't, you know, I'm not saying I was on that level, but it was me. Everyone suddenly is out. Uh, Clive Davis eventually he was out. So Doug called me and said, uh, Edgar. I said, Who's Edgar? He pronounced it E D G E R. He pronounced it Edgar is going to fund me in a new company called Rising Tide, and I'd love you to join me. He said, you're an independent record guy, and you know I'm independent now. And I did it with him. And the two of us had one desk at the Hit Factory recording studio. Eddie Germano had generously given us space. And from scratch, we create this company called Rising Tide. We get hot. I hired Monty Littman. I hired Steve Leeds. I hire uh, Kidaw Massenberg, who had given me D'Angelo when I was at... EMI, and I thought he was terrific, and he then brought in India, Irene, and uh, Erica Badu. So we're off and running, and then Doug calls me up. I was in the studio in Muscle Shoals, and he says, come home. You're the new president and CEO of Universal. I said, what's Universal? He said, that's the new record company, and you have to find a logo, and I'm going to be the chairman. I said, what happened to Al Teller? He said, oh, he's gone. They're all gone, but we're going to do this, and everybody's excited. So we came and started Universal and uh, from scratch, and a lot of the people, I guess, are still there uh, today, and it was a very, very tough time for me because when you join somebody to be independent and have a piece of a company, and all of a sudden you're an executive with department meetings and politics and, and stuff, I was a fish out of water, and it was a, it was a, a very tough time um, because I joined Doug for that dream, and I thought we would have been the biggest independent in the business. So uh, that, that, that wasn't a great time for me. And so then you go independent, distributed by uh, Sony. No, no, I did not. 
I went independent for a few days, and my dear, dear friend Danny Goldberg called me. Well, you were independent for longer than a few days, but okay. Whatever. And then Danny said, I need some help. And I stayed with him for a really long time. I had a wonderful, wonderful time with him. Learned a lot. And that was really graduate school of how to run a company, how to be fiscally responsible. And I don't think I could have done it if I didn't spend those years with Danny. Of, so you of, learned more from Danny than you did? Not from Danny. And Danny's still a dear, dear friend. Learn, and he taught me a lot because we had a day, what you did with today with Rob Glazer, we did every single day. Every day we did an hour worth of worldwide politics and current events, and I, I looked forward to it. And we met Al Franken would come in, Hillary Clinton would come in, Chuck Schumer, this young senator would come in. It was great. Um, and we discussed the world of liberal left-wing politics. Um, and it was, it was fantastic. And his house was the centerpiece of New York liberal art, and you'd meet Ornette Coleman and Patti Smith. It was the coolest place to go with it when he had a party because it wasn't only people from music. It was people from art. It was like being in the Chelsea, except it was at his house. So that was finishing school. I guess the lesson for anybody listening is... That's um, Artemis Records for that. Artemis Records. Taking notes. But I met these people there that I never would have met. I met Ricky Lee Jones and Warren Zevon and got friendly with Jackson Brown and then Dylan would make records for us and, and uh, Springsteen and uh, Keith Richards played on Peter Wolf's records and it was just meeting the best of the best of the best and that, I needed that in my education because I'd never met those people before and I never went in the studio with them. So I knew when I started my company one day I'd only want to be around the originals, the authentics. And I would sit with them. I remember driving hours with Graham Nash. He was the only sober, like normal one of that, those, those, those guys. And Graham would tell me the stories of Laurel Canyon. I, and I actually got, I, I, ma I made wrong turns with Graham in the car. He never, knows, he never knew this. Just to hear more stories. Tell me about Neil. Tell me about Elliot Roberts. Tell me about that. What about Joni? What about, he had complete recall. Because we were both photography freaks, him and I. So we had that common bond. And he was a very good father. So I got to meet Graham. Then I got to meet some wackos. Ricky Lee Jones was totally out of her mind. And Warren Zevon, if you know, it, nuts. Um, but it gave me the, the, it was the last refining of my palate before I went into the real world. And most people go into the real world at 21, 22. I waited until I was 48 to go into the real world. And uh, I remember Mo Austin, I asked him, when did you go into the real world? And he didn't go into the real world till he was 40-something. He was an accountant. Right. And I asked him a lot of questions. But Artemis came to an end. Some hedge fund creeps ruined it. And uh, they fired my dear friend Danny, and I didn't want to be part of it. So that was the day my wife said, we're doing this. We're going to do this with our own money. If we, if we starve, if we, if we struggle, we're going to do this. No more mergers, no more promises, no more people telling you you're going to be indie. We're going to do this. And uh, we bought two laptops first day. And that was how we started. And the first success was Phoenix, right? No, 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 no. First success was Secondhand Serenade. Um, this was the number one record. I don't know if you remember MySpace. Number one record on MySpace was Secondhand Serenade. And uh, the manager had invited us to a show, and I took my whole staff, which was one person besides me. But I showed up 
with um, 11 people that night. I, I stole that scene out of The Godfather, and I actually told Francis Ford Coppola this story. He loved it. Um, I took, we had one, one guy, my partner, Chris Scully, and I went to the show at the, uh, the Bitter End, and I couldn't show up alone, because I'm insecure now. Like, I'm starting from scratch, and you know the major labels are coming in, rolling deep with SUVs, and, and I was one of them at one time, and I said, you know what, I cannot show up alone, I, and I didn't want to pay a tab. So I said, why don't we just go? So I had my son, every friend he had, you come in. So the scene of The Godfather, if you remember, um, Al Pacino finds out that his father had been shot, and he said, well, who's protecting my dad? And they said, there's no one there. They call the hospital, there's no one there. So he has these guys show up and they turn their collars up, and the guy actually urinates in his pants because the other family came by and they see two guys standing outside, they go, oh boy, there must be a lot of protection. They move on. So I show up deep and I said to the manager, this is our team. <laughs> this is the team, this is, and I don't remember who came actually. We had an intern and my, and my son brought like five, five, six friends and me and, and, and Chris. And it was an interesting night because everybody left. The major labels who had flown this guy in, they all leave, except for one A&R guy from uh, Jive Records, he stayed. Jeff Fenster, I think was his name. But everybody leaves. And I said, wow. So the next day, the major labels have the meetings. They, and I don't want to make fun of people. They really messed up with this guy, though. So I flew to San Francisco, met the artist there, like Jerry Maguire. And I said, listen, this is it. It's, you'll be the biggest artist in the label. You'll be the only artist in the label. And I'll kill for you. I'll maim for you. We sold two and a half million copies of that record, Fall For You by Secondhand Serenade. And it was distributed by Warners. And uh, Lior Cohen was the head of the company at the time. And I made a one record deal with them. That was it. And then, I, and then we joined Sony Red after that and, and really built the company. And then that's when the days of uh, Justin Azuka and then Phoenix. Okay, so Phoenix had had a career that had sputtered in America. What made you believe this would be a hit? The record. It was the record. It was, um, we did not want to sign anybody with a past because I'd had a lot of that at Artemis and I wanted fresh. I wanted the best. I wanted international, left of center, inspired artists. So they checked a lot of boxes. The only thing is they had a track record. They had three records released through EMI, corporate, and the sales were always 29,000, 30,000, 31,000 albums. That was it. But the record, I brought it back to the company. Now we were like five people in the company. And it was 1901, and it was um, Listomania. And it was, it just was the best record I had heard in, in years. And I flew to Paris to meet them and told them what they'd need to do to make it. And at that meeting, I said, you got to get rid of a few things. We're not going to be French. We're not going to be fashion. We're not going to be pop, and we're not going to be dance. It's going to be one word, rock. And they said, great. And uh, we signed the deal like two days later. And um, they, I think they changed rock radio, that band, because no one had heard music like that. And I think a lot of the records we've had have changed the sound of radio, because is why I, I would prefer to sign something that's not commercial, that, that doesn't sound like the radio. And I think what gives us an advantage over the major labels is that they try and sign something that sounds like everything else. Uh, produced by the same people, written by the same songwriters who are based in like in a five block radius in in Los Angeles. We this was produced out of a band from Versailles, France, 
mixed by a guy from Paris, and uh, we took it out there, and it took 58 weeks uh, to break it, the first song. And then, you know, we're platinum, and we're at the Grammys. And, and then Mumford and Sons. So Two Door Cinema Club came next, and then Temper Trap came after that. And then uh, there was a band touring with the Temper Trap opening for them in Australia. And I went to see the Temper Trap, and the band that opened for them in front of literally 18 to 20 people was Mumford and Sons. And I had never seen anything that passionate, that emotional, because it just, it just transported me. And I freaked out. And no one liked it. The company, no one in the company liked it, and the industry didn't really care too much about it. So I flew to London three days later just to see in my own mind, was I romanticizing? Was I right? Was I wrong? Was it as good as I thought? And again, they opened for Temper Trap. They were better. They were better. And it was an easy deal. Manager was terrific. We're still good friends. And uh, that was not an easy record either. That, that record came out and, you know, it, it landed and didn't do so well at the beginning until a couple of radio stations started playing it. More of my conversation with executive Daniel Glass in a moment. If you like the podcast, please go to leftsets.com and sign up for the newsletter. Comes out once, twice, sometimes even three times a day to keep up on my story and the world at large. Now, let's continue our conversation with Daniel Glass of Glass Note Records. Okay, so let's jump to today. And today's marketplace certainly changed from what it was in the 90s and even 10 years ago. So, if a, how do you sign a band today? Do you get in bidding wars with other labels? Do you find things that other labels don't want? Do you get in early? What, what ultimately happens? We get in early. Um, we've been in one bidding war in the history of the company, and I regret it. We actually made money on the deal, but I regret it because it, it lost the essence of why you come. It goes back to what you said, why would you want to be on this label? And uh, when we started to audition for this artist, um, it lost the essence and the taste for me. And I still resent that battle. And I think marriages are very indicative of the courtship and the engagement. And I, I'm, I still think there's a chronic issue in that engagement, which subsequently affected the band's career after we had the big monster hit. We have to be early. We have to be very early, and we have to get on it. Um, we really want to see the live performance. I think 90 to 95% of the artists that we've signed has not been done through research or a buzz or some metric and data. It's been through hearing the music and then seeing it live. Very different than most labels. Most labels do not sign that way. Most labels sign, especially major labels, um, social media numbers, uh, streaming numbers. Um, that's not how we do it. So... Our current artist that's rising up now, Jade Bird, the manager came in and played her. And I, I felt the same way about her that I felt about Mumford & Sons. This is an artist for the ages. How is she doing this at 19 years old? Where is she getting this understanding of folk and blues and rock and country? And I met her, and I met perhaps the most ambitious person I had met in years. So she started checking off these boxes in my head, and I knew this was going to be that she was going to be one of the biggest artists in the world. And it may take five years. It may take seven years. I don't really care. But we were early. And I don't know if anybody else wanted her. 
Um, and it doesn't matter to me if anybody else wanted her. It really doesn't. I think those are foolish conversations. Should have, would have, could have. Every time we have a success, I meet someone in a hallway of a conference who says to me, I could have done that, or I knew about that. My boss just wouldn't let me. I just walk away. Like, so well, why didn't you do it if you, if you knew about it? Um, so you have to be early. I think the live performance and the songs are the key to us. Um, lawyers don't play a big part in it anymore for me. You know, if the, it used to be in the 80s, early 90s, the lawyer would have a lot to do with it. You know, they'd get you on the phone and tell you, they'd wind you up, but not anymore. Um, it really comes from different sources. We tend to lean towards international music at our company. I think if we have a prejudice, we, we kind of like things that are outside of America. Um, and those work really well. But we do well with left-of-center music. People okay, get, but let's stop there. If we look at the Spotify Top 50, it's almost completely urban. And most of the pop records of the last year have failed. Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, etc. And in addition, radio is pretty much all urban. And the other labels are not signing anything other than Me Too Acts. How are you having success with records that don't sound like everybody else's? About two years ago, we doubled down on spending, spending more money on making records, making better records, and almost went on a freeze of releasing records. So, like Churches is a good example of a band that competes and makes a lot of money. They make money through licensing, sync, sales, streaming. Their, their concert revenue is fantastic. So that's a band that's keeping up with the times and doing very, very well. Um, I think Jade ultimately goes to the top of it. When we had our success with Childish Gambino, he wasn't hip-hop, he wasn't rap, it was just great soul music, and we knew we had something. We stayed with it for 70-something weeks. So we can do that, and I think that's how we compete. And you look at our streaming, we did, we did 4.7 million streams last week of Redbone, 6.7 million on the album last week. And when he goes on SNL this week, it's going to go crazy again. So two things, good catalog and sign great music and stay with it. Now, are you spending on marketing or are you spending on the actual records? You said you double down on spending. A&R, most important. You know, when you see Dave Cobb is producing three different projects for us right now. He might be the hottest producer in the world. Greg Kirsten did eight songs on churches. Uh, Niall Godrich is about to do something for us. Paul Epworth is working on a record for us. Um, the mixing of the records. The uh, Simone Felice, who just had the Lumineers success, is working on Jade. Um, you've got to hire the best people. You have to have the best of the best of the best. Red One, we have a hit with him right now with Mansion Air. Um, uh, you know, who, uh, we're connected because of, you know, Troy Carter has so much success with Red One and Gaga. Um, Every day, it's all I dwell on is the A&R, the A&R, the A&R. Everything else is easy after that. You've got to make better records, and you've got to have the best songs. You've also told me with certain acts on your label, you told them, if you don't deliver a hit, either stay in the studio, and if you want off the label, that's fine. Yeah, we, we've, th that's really it. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a kind of a brutal summary, but we're in that bag with like three or four people right now, and three of the four are loving it. They're loving the quote-unquote tough love. One of them can't handle it, and one of them's going to go. So that's okay. Um, he'll be better off somewhere else. 
but you, you've got to raise the standards because it's just too tough. It's just really, really too tough. You know, I had a, I had a battle with James Hersey two years ago. I was in Berlin with him, and he handed his record in, and it was good. And then we had this whole fight about the record, and finally he agreed, okay, I'll show you. And he came up with a song called Miss You, and Will Hicks produced it, and Steve Fitzmaurice mixed it. You know, that's guy produced Ed Sheeran's first record. The other guy did the Stay With Me for Sam Smith. And uh, Spotify alone, we're at 95 million streams on one song, that song. So we got to beat that song now. But that, 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 would, that was torture. He's going to beat it now. He's working on something with terrific producers now. But, but that, that was a very unpleasant experience. And the only reason I, I do it is because of my three children. Because I, I notice when you, and I've said this many times, is the indulgences as a father and a mother are not always the best thing. You got to be able to tell the kids, lights out, no, no, no dinner tonight, or take away the phone from them, or whatever you had to do as a parent. And uh, I think artists need that. I don't think we give them enough direction and enough expertise and to say to them, because ultimately we all fail. If the records come in and we do it because they need it out by, by Coachella, I need it out by Glastonbury or, you know, my manager, nobody wins. Okay, so let's say you get the James Hersey record. Tell us how you approach the marketing and promotion of that record. Or a record, doesn't have to be that specific record. So James will be handling, handing his record in a, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, and it'll come out this summer, and we'll probably start in... in uh, Austria, Germany, and the Nordics. I think Spotify will be very key to his record. I mean, they were really key that from Denmark and, and Stockholm were the people that really got behind him. So we're going to start there. Um, I, I probably will get on a plane with our head of international and go to see people in Stockholm and Berlin and start it there. I think the UK would be next, um, and hopefully the, the fuse will be lit. Uh, Sirius XM was very helpful on the last record. Uh, and I think that's key. Um, he's got an idea for a video. We'll probably want to work with, I think the video wars are going to start up again between Facebook and, and uh, YouTube and uh, Spotify and Apple. And we'll take advantage of that. And I think we'll go to each one of them and say, if you love this, would you like to fund or create a piece of content? And I, as an indie, it's nice when they do that. Okay, so when you, I know when you come to L.A., you have a meeting with Apple, you have a meeting with everybody involved. What do you tell them? Well, I play the music. I think the main thing is to play the music. Where a company likes to bring the artist in, when you have a label that has people as, as magnetic, as charismatic, as inspirational as Marcus Mumford and his guys, and you know guys from Phoenix, Aurora, um, uh, Jade, you're better off bringing the artist with you. Let them tell the story of how the record was made. You know, no one better than Lauren Mayberry of Churches to tell her story or even play a few songs. So I prefer that meeting rather than some record company, you know, reading off a piece of paper, this is going to be a smash. So it's better to tell how the record was made, but we'll see everybody. We'll see everybody at iHeart and, and Cumulus and, and Entercom and, uh, and Apple and Pandora. We, we go see everybody, Spotify, um, well, tell us about the playlist wars. How do they affect you? Or how do you enter that system? Relationships. You know, somebody asked me, 
I, I forgot the restaurant we went to the other day. Oh, I know where I was. I was, I was with my wife somewhere, and we wanted to get a table at a restaurant, and afterwards there's a movie screening. So we got the table we wanted, and the movie theater, the, the policy is no reserve seats. And we get into the theater, and the, the waiter said, uh, would you like your dessert in the theater? I said, that'd be great. You could do that? He says, absolutely. So we get to the theater, and almost embarrassingly, there's three seats reserved center center. And I called someone in my company who told me it's all about the algorithm. I said, was that about the algorithm, or was that about being nice and going back and being, you know, it was about a relationship that I had with somebody who said something to somebody. So we got those reserved seats. And I think it's the same thing with this farce, that it's all about the algorithm and it's all about the, the data. I think it's about people. It's about people. Somebody behind the technology, my son, my youngest son worked at Spotify for two summers. One summer he coded and once he worked on an artist development relations thing. They were people doing the engineering, people with a heartbeat and a pulse and a soul. The same people run the playlist, the same people that WBLS and WABC and KFRC. Algorithms do kick in. You can't keep a stiff up. And I actually like that, that the playing field gets level for independence when you get in there. But getting in there is no different than it was in the 60s, in the 70s, and, and, and five years ago. So you have to have incredible relationships and know how dominoes work in life. And so let's say you go to Spotify, they agree to go on a record, and it doesn't react. To me, you have to have patience. If you overshoot and try and get big placement New Music Friday, get on the top 50 of this, rap caviar, whatever it is, the biggest of the big lists, you're setting yourself up for probable failure. I prefer to build slowly. I would prefer to get a folk list, an urban list, an R&B list, a soul list, um, a chill list. It's like my favorite, one of my favorite stations right now is this chill channel on, uh, on Sirius. That's where records start. It's one of the hottest stations. So that leads to Alt Nation. That leads to the uh, Kid Kelly station, the Sirius Hits One or, or Venus. I prefer building. I think you, you last longer. So we go in with a knowledge of many, many editors in L.A., in New York, in London, different people. It's the same thing with Beats One. The Beats One is a great radio station, a great resource. If you only want the world record, which is what most UK executives do. They want one play on any Mac, and they want one play on Beats 1. They forget about week 2 through week 19. So I'd prefer to build equally with many of the digital players and spread it out with them and build sensibly. Okay, so how important is Sirius? Very, 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 very important. It's so well run. They are so good at what they do. You see them at festivals. They get the prominent position. Um, you know when you know how important Sirius is? When your artist starts selling 300 tickets and then 600 tickets. And the, you could speak to every club owner and promoter. It's coming from them. Country, dance, uh, every genre of music. They, they're great at it. It's, it's vital. It's really, really well. And what is the future of terrestrial radio? I think it's in pretty good hands because you still... I think we have at least a generation and a half of people that still push a button in a car. It's still a reflex 
of a DJ and a button in a car. I think the car is the battle for Sirius and the car and for Pandora and for Spotify and for the VR of, of the Echo. Um, but for now, it's still about radio. And when you have people like Bob Pittman running radio and making it extremely accessible and friendly, I think you're in really, really good shape at radio for now. I know you and I disagree on this. Um, I think radio in tandem with streaming. Radio just has to play more new music. They're playing it too late. The lag time has got to stop. Lag time, I've judged, is about 28 weeks with records. That doesn't make any sense. You've got to get it down to five or six. If they can do that and spot records earlier, because young people will abandon them. The two to nine-year-olds that are growing up now will never listen to radio if they can't get new music and discover music there. So it's like the 16 to 17-year-old kids in Parkland High School. They're going to vote in a few months. And they're going to vote with their heart and mind and conscience. They're going to take over this country. They're going to do something very similar to the 60s. So I think this generation coming up, the two-year-olds know how to use Alexa. And they're going to want to hear their music now. They're not going to want to hear commercials. So radio's got to start thinking about this new generation. If they don't, they're going to alienate people and no one's going to listen to the radio. But for now, I think when you have real, real radio people running it, and I think iHeart's a good example. I just came back from Australia and you know how important Triple J is to that market. Uh, I think radio's still fine. And, and it's every manager I meet with they want to be on the radio. They want to be on the radio. And I think when you speak to a, a concert venue owner and you speak to a, a, um, a festival person, they talk about radio. And they want to see the amount of streams, but they want to hear about radio. I actually think Spotify is excited when radio is in tandem with them somehow. It's rare that they're in tandem, but we've talked about Spotify. As a record company, how important are Amazon and Apple? Very. Uh, Amazon is a secret giant. Uh, they've been great partners with us, with Mumford & Sons, with Jade. They're, they do exclusive music. It's, it's a very underrated uh, 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 ecosystem right now. And every time they open up the voice recognition in a country, it explodes. I predict Australia is going to explode. And the fact that Spotify and Pandora and iHeart and Sirius are going through their system... And you now have, our house, thanks to Sonos, we have Sonos in the office and we have Sonos One in our houses. Um, and to us, it's the best of everything, to go on demand and hear our music. Most of my music, I have to say, comes through either Spotify or, or Sirius um, when, I, when I request an artist. Uh, but Amazon is amazing in country music, rock music. I don't think they're dominant in hip-hop music. I think SoundCloud and, and, uh, and Spotify and Apple are. Apple, I think, is getting better and better and better every day. You finally feel them connecting. Uh, the different silos there, I think they had a lot of issues. Um, but when they, if they could exploit that radio station, I think we're in for, in for a treat. I think Beats One is just this amazing radio station that needs more listeners. More Daniel Glass wisdom after this break. Hope you're enjoying this episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast. 
If you want to hear sound bites or check out videos and photos of our guests, go to at TuneIn on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Welcome back to my conversation with Daniel Glass. Now we're going to throw it to the audience and see what they have to ask. Uh, what, what metrics do you currently use to gauge the success of developing artists that you're working with? Well, streaming is the easiest and quickest for us. Um, we look at a lot of live stuff, though. We have a touring department, and we really feel that if you build it, they come. When, when, when ticket sales start going up, we get more excited, even though it's not really the business we're in, and we don't really have a piece of most of the artist's live income. Uh, so I would say streaming numbers first, and then uh, I think Shazam is, is good in a lot of ways in different markets. We, we like that. I think that's a, a very active participant. But I would say ticket numbers is, is, is really important for us. And we go to the, we go to the shows and we, we, we watch and we see who's reacting. We're on this alt, alternative nation tour right now with this group Mansion Air, and we're, we're looking at that. So I think that's, that's a key, I think, with streaming numbers. Hi, Daniel. John Boyle. Um, so uh, just one quick comment and then a question for you. Um, you've probably been the uh, foremost gentleman I've ever worked with in this business from when we had you at EDM Biz um, all the way through uh, how you've ra raised your family. Um, I've become friends with your son, Sean, who's becoming a very important person in the business, and so I commend you on that. Um, I think you're somebody that I um, hope to have those same, um, you know, be looked at in the same way down the road. Uh, Asia, I'm now running Live Nation Japan. Um, the Japanese repertoire is 90%, well, the Japanese music business is 90% Japanese repertoire. By the way, CD sales still dominate in Japan. Um, what is, and, and it's not dissimilar throughout most of Asia, including India. What is your Asian strategy? Do you see Asia as a panacea? Being in the live music business, I do, but how we break down these walls and get further exposure for Western acts, I think, is our challenge. So streaming is a key. I'll answer your question in a sort of a semicircle. I started noticing our artists going to Lollapalooza and different places that Live Nation owns in South America. And I looked at streaming numbers of our artists, and the number two market, the number three markets were Brazil, were Mexico, were Chile. And I was like, whoa, now I know where they're going down there. And the Android phone is bigger than anything in those markets. So I started looking at the streaming numbers there. Then I see, and I, and I called Daniel Eck the day he made the deal with Tencent. I said, that's brilliant to throw in with the biggest streaming person there. So I think that the Tencent investment, the reverse or reciprocal, you call it, investment there is, 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 is going to create a lot of waves. I think India is going to go. I'm very encouraged about Japan only because I follow Germany very closely. That has been a physical market, that has been a domestic market, that has been a CD market, and it's changing. It's finally changing slowly to a streaming market. Uh, I believe if we could penetrate streaming in Japan, they just don't know about the music. We went through an era, I guess it peaked with Michael Jackson, where it was American pop. And then we did a terrible job as a business sending artists there. Um, we still send artists to Japan. We send churches there. We send Phoenix just left a few days ago. And they're in Beijing, actually, at the Great Wall. Um, 
yesterday. So managers in working with companies like yours have to make the investment to go. That's probably number one. And then go back again and then go back again. You can't dilute it too, you can't go everywhere. So I really believe that we come back to this conference in two years, we're gonna be going, I mean, seven months we'll see South America, we'll see India, we'll see China, and I do believe there's gonna be a change in Japan. I do believe the phone and the streaming, Spotify, Apple, will be there. Um, It could be a third service though, because we didn't see Tencent coming, and it might be a different service because the nationalism, the xenophobia, you know, that could take over, there could be a Deezer or, or something like that in that market. I'm very encouraged, though, because of what I saw in South America, Mexico, and in, uh, in Germany. Just one question. We've also been talking about Chance the Rapper and certain acts debating whether they even need a label. How do you foresee that playing out? So Chance the Rapper, I get asked about all the time, and... I think that's the aberration, that's the anomaly. Um, he started out with a lot of money. You know, Pat is a friend, a friend of my son, more than me. You know, that's a seven-figure investment. It's nice to have that. Um, and they did it. And he's a really important artist. He sells stadiums out. He's really, really important. I tend to think that most of these artists that are not going to have a qualified team with them are not going to have important catalogs, are not going to have long-lasting careers. I think you still need the great agent and the publicity and the licensing sync and the artist development nuances to be a bona fide international artist. I still believe in the team. I think the bidding wars of the major labels that are going into, there was an $8 million deal signed a few weeks ago, then there was a $15 million deal signed a few weeks ago, and that probably is just coming because of these in, in, infusions of cash from Facebook and Spotify that have just come into the vaults of these companies. Um, I still think you need a team. Uh, I think there are managers who are doing a very, very good job of having promotion and marketing in, within their own management company. There's maybe four of those, though. Uh, so I think you're going to see one maybe every couple of years. Uh, we've tried to sign some of them. And I'm not sure how they're going to do, those artists. I think still think you need it. I would advise somebody to be smart, to write your deal the way you want to write it, but you still need a team. I, 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 every artist in our company that had success, no way they could have done it without an independent, uh, patient company behind them. Um, and I think they all start out, you know, somebody in the hallway was using the word with me, uh, what inspires you? And what's inspirational? And that word, you know, it could be used so loosely. I think the inspired artists really do need a team because, you know, there was a team behind Kanye West. There was a whole team. And he, then you get off in fashion and, and, and dance and ballet and, and, and all the things that he's been involved in. But there was a very good team behind him and everybody else that, that, that's been successful. So I, I do believe you need a team. There's always going to be a chance, though. Okay. Other questions? How does a new artist get onto your radar? How many, how many acts have you passed on with me, Daniel? A lot. So that's how you get on his radar. You, you ask him and then he sends it well, to Well, the manager of Jade Bird is a great guy. Like, I put him in that A group of management. He manages Plan B, Tom O'Dell, Liam Gallagher, Jess Glynn. And we had a chance to sign probably all of those. Um, and they're all successful not in America, not in different places. 
we just didn't feel it. You know, there's a culture in our company, and it's a family culture, and it starts with my wife and my children and the people like Bianca. It's a family. So that's one thing. You have to have a culture in your company. And I always look at the artists and say, would I have them over on Sunday? I really think about that. First of all, are they stars? They have great repertoire. You know, that, let's just say they have that. Um, so getting on the radar, I would say managers. I really trust agents. I think agents are really good, and managers are the two best sources for me. Club owners, I think, are great. There was an artist that played here. People were singing every word of the song. Should have seen the reaction. Those are good sources to me. Um, a couple of people at Spotify, not, not high ups, but middle to lower. Uh, I still talk to radio people all the time. Um, those are sources. Um, I don't know. It's just, you know, you talk to, you talk to people. You've got to trust your team, too. We have an amazing team. Our little team, our family, member has grown up with us. So now you have people who have been with us six to eight years, and they are out there. So that's, that's a way. But, you know, we created a culture in our company, and it's, and it's family. It may not be for everybody. We're a family culture. We're a family of inspired people. I would prefer our people go to the ballet or a foreign film. I'm, I, I'm taking this Thursday night, I'm taking six to eight of our people to the shed, which is the newest, coolest, most cutting edge art space in the world where the High Line meets the, um, meets, uh, uh, what's it called, the new city, the building uh, over, the, over the railroad tracks. No, what? Hudson Yards. And it's, it's the people that did the armory it's the most, that's, ins, that's inspirational. If you could see that. I want my team to do that. So I want an artist that, that would be moved by going to the shed with me. I want to hear what book they read. I want to see what movie they... What, what, that's why one of the reasons I love reading Bob is, is he turns me on to movies, I turn him on to a book, and vice versa. So I want that in our company. I want inspiration. And when you say family, you know, I, I thought about it this morning in prep, in, in, in just in preparing this, we started this company, you know, 10 and a half, 11 years ago. There's marriages in our company now, beautiful marriages that we've, I've attended some weddings and there's another wedding, two more weddings coming up this summer. Great people. And then I look at the lead singer of Phoenix gets married to Sofia Coppola. The lead, the, the keyboard player marries Kinga Burza, who might be the best video director in the world. She's incredible. She just did the Aurora video. I see Marcus Mumford marries Carrie Mulligan. Winston marries Diana Grown, another great actor. Um, and I see now a lot of our artists are having children. And we go out together and we, we go to opera together. We go to, we travel together. And that's what I wanted when I started, because that's what Chrysalis was for me. That was so beautiful. We, we did everything together. I got to know Blondie late and Benatar late and Jethro Tull. I got to, he brought us Gravlocks from his farm to Chris Wright's house where he had his trout. These are, these are rich guys, you know, and I, I was a, you know, a little pitcher at 26 years old uh, going into these places, but I wanted that. So when I started Glassnote, I needed to learn about the past to say what kind of environment, what kind of family. I wanted to have a, a, a family culture, but I wanted a culture of excellence. And I wanted to train people. I didn't want to hire major label people, and for the most part we haven't. The few we did are very, very good, but for the most part I prefer not to. So when you get that culture, and you have these people that can come over, and I don't know, it just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a better feeling. And I never worried, 
You know, some people say, how much money do you make? I think we make a lot of money. I think we sell a lot of records, but it's not that important to me. What's important is that you come to see these artists and you go, wow, I was emotionally transported tonight. That to me is better than number one. That really, I really mean that. The first time I hear it on the radio and then when someone comes to a show and goes, that was really something. I think that's what you want to be in business with. So that's the, that's the A&R of the company in a, in a roundabout way. It, it, it's, it's really about fitting into a, a much more inspired cultural world than it is, you know, there's a, there's an artist we signed, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not boring you, but I went to the Juno Awards, uh, not this year, the year before, and it was in Ottawa, and Justin Trudeau had given a very emotional speech about the indigenous population, the First Nation Indians, and uh, I didn't know a lot about it, I did some research, and this young man gets up on stage and sings a song called Breathless, William Prince. And I met William that night, and he made everybody cry. He sang this song, and behind him was the scroll of who died that year. And everybody's crying, and he gets a standing ovation. And thanks to my wife, I went over to him, I gave him my business card, and a month and a half later, we decided to, to go into business together. And uh, Dave Cobb just produced his record. And the reason I say it is I got to hear his story of what it was like to get out of what I, I said to him, and this is over many lunches and dinners, what went on on the Indian reservation? And he's not supposed to be alive, this guy, between opioids, diabetes, rape. He's not supposed to, if you've seen the movie Wind River, that's what it's like. You should see that movie. It's an important movie from last year with Jeremy Renner. So William overcame that. William got into medical school. And now... I think he's going to have a big hit record. But that's why we signed him, because of his voice. He is not any... Uh, Bianca asked me at lunch today, who do you think is going to play the record? What play? I have no idea. I have no idea who's ever going to play this guy's record. It's just great. Lucian Grange wrote me a note, and he wrote, great song, great record. And he said, good luck. I don't know, if, I don't know what he meant by that. Was that like a dig, or was that like good luck getting something this different? On the, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Nothing like his voice. But there was nothing like, you know, the banjo. There was nothing like that. There was nothing like, you know, Gambino. So um, that's the A&R of the company. And, he, and the song made me cry. And then Dave Cobb heard it. And he said, I got to produce this. So after he did Chris Stapleton and Sturgill Simpson and Jason Isbell and Brandy Carlisle and all the records he's had, he did it. And it's coming out, you know, in a few weeks. So uh, that's the A&R. That's the company. That's the inspiration. That's how we work the company. I don't know if that's a business thing, but I think that's what Chris Blackwell did. I think that's what Jerry Moss did. I think that's what Chris Wright did. And I think that's, that's the people that I want to be like one day when I grow up. So that, that's, that's my feeling. And on that note, let's congratulate Daniel on a great performance. A lot of information here. That was Daniel Glass, executive extraordinaire from the Music Media Summit in Santa Barbara, California. Daniel's literally done it all other than be a musician himself. He was a DJ, worked at many labels before he started his own company, and had mega success. If you want to know where it's going, if you want to know how to live your life, listen to Daniel Glass. Thanks for listening. 
Don't hesitate to email me at bobatleftstats.com with feedback and suggestions. I may not always respond, but I read every email. Till next time, I'm Bob Leftsets. Must be it's out, out.